Культура кура. Культура стілює. В Латинській Америці кажуть культура кура, що означає культура або спілкування стілює. Розкажи свою історію. Стіли себе, стіли своє суспільство. We are starting our podcast dedicated to the topic of culture, culture that heals. We called our program Cultura uh, Cura, which is a widely spread in Latin America expression that means uh, communication or culture that heals. And we would like to discuss um, whether culture has a potency to heal uh, torn society, fragmented society, and in which ways uh, can we heal uh, our societies uh, by by the culture and today we would like to speak with our um, British guests this is Brendan Hawthorne, Emma Pershaus and Jonathan Davidson and uh, I would like to begin uh, with uh, asking our guests to uh, present uh, themselves. I am Uh, begging my pardon for maybe not very good English, but I would try to to make my best. So, uh, could you please say a few words about uh, about yourself? And maybe I would uh, I would start from the question: uh, Who are you? What are you? And uh, what was your way to become uh, what you what you are a writer uh, in UK or a cultural manager in UK? Uh, so please, uh, Brandon. Yes, uh, hello everybody. Um, I um, I'm I'm the non-academic. I, I don't have any uh, formal training in writing. I I. Um, I basically started writing for the love of, of the written word um, and working from a from the point well I called it an advantage point of being a dyslexic as well and so um, my barriers to learning and 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 so forth brought a broader understanding of how I could speak beauty in in the industrial landscape that we have around us here in the black country Um, I started off with being self-published and sending my work off to uh, what we term as small press magazines, which are limited-run, um, small circulation magazines, which um, basically give you a first stage of editing for your work. And then, obviously, editors from public uh, publishers come around to find you. Uh, via these magazines, and that's how I managed to get my first um, nationally published piece of work out. And uh, I was going back to 2004. Since then, I've had various writing commissions uh, and held various posts over the years, uh, working with our NHS system and big organisations like English Heritage and the National Trust. And, um, and I've recently been uh, an award-winning writer for Dialect with the National Awards competition. So that's me in a nutshell, born and bred black countryman, uh, not really moved more than a couple of miles away from where I was born. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brendan. And Emma, uh, could you uh, present yourself and say a few words uh, to Ukrainian listeners about yourself? Oh yeah, um, I'm Emma, Emma Persehouse. I'm a writer and a performance poet. Um, 
I make my living from writing and writing related activities so facilitating workshops will be included in that I'm from the, like, like Brendan I'm from the black country um, I've always written since I was very little um, but I found I wasn't I wasn't very confident about sending stuff out and it was only when I was about ooh, 30 that I got involved well 40 actually got involved with performance poetry and began to perform my work and then things started to take off um, with regard to my career I have done a degree level qualification in writing but I didn't do it until I was um, much older I didn't do it from school um, and I'm, but I'm not very academic and I struggled with that quite a lot uh, so that's kind of where where I'm at really making my way through performance rather than the written side of things although recently I have become a published novelist but I've been trying to do that since I was about 20 so that's me really mm -hmm. thank you Emma and Jonathan could you uh, uh, tell us about your field of activity okay yes welcome everybody um so my name is Jonathan Davidson and I'm the odd one out because I'm not from the from the black country. Um, in fact, I'm from the south of England, although my, my family are from the northwest, Liverpool and Merseyside. Uh, and in fact, my family uh, were industrial workers, or certainly my father was factory worker in car factories, and my mother was a cleaner and a baker. So like Emma and Brendan, um, I've come into the world of writing from outside. I don't have a qualification in creative writing. Um, what I do now and what I've done for the last 20 years is run an organisation called Writing West Midlands. We're a very small organisation. We work across quite a large area, 12,000 square kilometres, 5.9 million people. And we do what we can to encourage people to write creatively and to have their work shared and encourage people to come and discover the pleasures of being writers themselves, but also the pleasures of hearing and reading other writers. So, um, I've, I've not, to my uh, discredit, done very much work with Brendan, but I hope to do more in the future. Uh, but Emma, I've known for a while now, and uh, I, I know about the work she's done creating uh, literature, often, almost always set in her country, her location, the black country, the same area that Brendan works in. And so it's been my pleasure to try and make sure that a wider group of people across the country and beyond hear the work of black country writers like Emma and Brendan and other writers we work with. Um, we have a kind of uh, practical set of requirements. We, we get people together, we organize events and so on. But on the pinning that is a sort of philosophical interest in giving everybody uh, level access to everybody else, to making sure that we don't privilege any particular type of literature or any particular background but we give everybody a chance to have their work heard and, and to, uh, to hear other people's work. That's me in a nutshell as well. Oh, it's a very encouraging challenge, uh, Jonathan. <laughs> so uh, maybe uh, we shall start uh, to, from question to Brendan. Uh, so even to my ear, uh, I noticed some differences of speech uh, between Jonathan and Emma's and Brandon's uh, languages. So, and as far as I understand, it uh, disconnected with the black country. So, Brandon, uh, could you please uh, explain uh, 
what is uh, black country, uh, what is special for, and um, what is uh, actually uh, so special about black country dialect, uh, how it is, how it separates black country from the other regions of uh, of the UK, and uh, maybe uh, what's its origin. Yeah. Um... Well, for me, uh, the first problem we have here is to actually define what the black country is, uh, geographically and culturally, really. Um, there are, you can ask probably 100 people and get 100 different answers. But based on, on language itself, the black country is generally seen as the, um, the uh, four boroughs, uh, four collective areas, uh, which make up the black country now, which is the, the regions of Warsaw, Sandwell, uh, Dudley and Wolverhampton, and um, uh, the language here uh, has been likened to being the closest to Chaucerian uh, dialect or language um, that exists in the country. And so we have that historic background which takes us back several hundred years, but it goes back much further than that to, uh, well, with the invasion of the uh, Saxons and, and the Anglo-Saxon culture coming into it, where a lot of our words are still rooted, a lot of our sounds of words are still rooted. And um, even name places where I where I live is a, a place called Wensbury, which is uh, carries the Woden uh, God uh, prefix to its name. So it, we've, we've got that historical side to it. Um, but we've also had various industrial revolutions and, and for Wensbury, certainly in our Tudor times in the 15th century, 16th century, that sort of period, medieval through into Tudor, uh, we had industrial revolutions of pottery industries, um, which um, obviously took a lot of trees down and brought more people into the area. And then that followed on much later with the industrial revolutions of the Victorian age. Um, which basically rooted a lot of people in this region because there was plenty of work, we didn't have to move very far. And so our languages tend to get concentrated or less diluted than maybe reason, uh, regions where there are more transient workforces. Um, some of the sounds that we have here are still very much from the runic or the Anglo-Saxon um, speech patterns. Uh, and if you look at some of the early writings in Black Country, you will see very much that we we um, tend to have uh, what I call a split or a, a dual sounding um, uh, push in a, in a word. Uh, it, let's take, for example, the word shoes. Um, it seems as though there is um, just the one sound to that shoes. It goes through. But actually in, in black country become shewers. So we actually pronounce more of the letters. We get a split vowel sound, if you like, within our words. And that's one thing that gives us away. The big problem we, we sort of have with the black country dialect is that you can literally cross the road and hear a different type of dialect or accent. Um, and also depending on where families have picked up their dialects from, and also down to the industries that people worked in where you've got language specific words that become used in their daily speech patterns. Like for argument's sake, when it's raining, if it's really coming down with, with the gusts of wind, 
it's a it's a spattering of rain. Whereas if you take that back to the uh, steel industries, uh, iron and steel spatters when you're pouring out the molten metal into the cold ingots and all of that sort of thing. So you get this this sense of um, of flyaway rain. So um, yeah, I mean we 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 are li linked directly to uh, to sort of the medieval English patterns, and um, say 20 years ago, nobody was really interested in keeping the dialects going because it was a thing to be ashamed of to speak in dialect. And so uh, to speak properly uh, in what we could determine as, as being the Queen's English, um, it was seen as the way forward. Uh, but now there is such an interest in preserving dialect that thankfully um, the dialect here is being held as, as one of the dialects that really needs saving uh, without it becoming an ex exhibition or a museum piece. It's still a living language, but obviously the roots of it need to be kept in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, does it mean that when you speak uh, this, for example, black country dialect, that you are in some in some way uh, feeling isolated from other uh, other speaking uh, speaking groups of people in England and um, uh, do you do you still see this, these processes of maybe unification of English language, or uh, do you see now the counter process, the process of giving voices to to the local communities? You have written a few books. I'm, I saw your book on Warwickshire and Black Country dialects. So probably you can uh, tell a few things about this. Yeah. Um... The, the thing with dialect is that um, it was meant to be able to communicate with the people who you were working directly with. And I think as the, as the globalization has, has taken place and certainly um, countries have, have, have shrunk as far as um, commuting to work or, or people moving uh, places to live, all that sort of thing. Um, think has had an impact on it and I think that we couldn't go to um, uh, speaking broad back black country to certain people because they wouldn't understand us so and I think this is very true with any areas of um, uh, deep industrialization um, like the northeast northwest uh, to name a couple where you've got um, very strong identities through language but we've also got the the uh, added influences now of migrant workers coming in and some of the migrant workers pick up the dialect as it is and then you get these wonderful uh, merges of uh, inflection and, and speech pattern uh, with various other cultures and so the the language in itself is expanding um, and I, I don't see really the black countries being any different now to um, people understanding maybe technical speak uh, due to the computer, you know, computers and technology. Uh, it's almost like every industry has its language and it's just that this has been a global language that's developed through technology, whereas with dialect, it was a regional um, accent and dialect. Uh, you mentioned for the several times this uh phenomenon of uh, industrialization. So uh, can you say that uh, the 
industrial uh, area or the working class, especially uh, working class of people, have some uh, special, uh, their own uh, speech, own dialect. And uh, what, what, kind of, what kind of dialect is this? What does it mean actually to be a person uh, bred and born in a uh, working, uh, working society because you and Emma both present yourselves as uh, uh, writers from working class. Yeah. And on leaving school, I, I worked in a factory for 18 years. And leading up to that, going through school, uh, so I, I, went, I, I, I'm born in, I was born in 1961. So going through school in the 1960s and into the 70s, we were, it was a very strange setup really. We were told to try and lose our accent or dialect because it wouldn't serve us well in the future because of people not understanding us or thinking that we were working class or maybe not as intelligent as somebody who could speak properly as we would describe it. So you go through school trying to lose it. I went into a factory and if you spoke properly in a factory, you were seen as somebody who was above their station as in getting above where you should be. And so you end up in this weird dichotomy of who you speak properly to and who you use your dialect with. And so I think in some way, shape or form, and certainly looking at the two books on, on Black Country dialect and on the Warwickshire dialect, which were very, very different in dialect because Warwickshire is Birmingham based, whereas uh, us in the Black Country have got our own speech patterns. Um, you ended up trying to be all things to all people. And I think that was one of the reasons why a lot of the dialect lost its impact uh, and people almost became ashamed of the way they spoke to, to people and it, it disengaged them from speaking to people in authority because it was uh you almost felt uh, a lower class of citizen because of the way you spoke mm -hmm. so uh going on further with this question of uh, working class i would like to ask emma uh could you uh, describe the situation with working class literature and uh becoming a writer uh or a poet or a performer uh, being from a working class and especially being uh, a woman? Yeah, um, I think I found it, uh, well, like Brendan, I, mean, I left school at 15 and was working in factory jobs, cleaning jobs, a whole range of jobs. Uh, the government at the time, it was the 80s and there wasn't much work about, so you tended to be transient between different kinds of jobs. And I'd always written ever since I was little and I was writing during that time, but I didn't, I couldn't find anything to do with the, the writing because there wasn't really um, what I saw as the people publishing what I was writing. There were one or two small press magazines for poetry. Um, like there was one called Purple Patch in our region that um, Brendan will, will know about that and would have submitted to. So there were places like that that you felt you could send things to, but there were few and far between. And I also didn't know any other writers um, 
always kind of felt like it was a very lonely thing to be doing, almost odd. Um, so my friends probably, if I'd have told them that's what I was doing, most I thought it was a bit weird. <laughs> um, and I wasn't really seeing any other poets performing stuff at that time either. So it just felt like a, com a compulsive thing to be doing. Um, I started trying to write novels more so than the poetry because I could see a way, you knew you'd got to kind of send it to a publisher and I could see who they were, but I was just not getting anywhere with it. And people would say, lose the dialect, don't write about these type of people. I used to get a lot of that, which meant my type of people. And that was very, very difficult. Um, it, so I kept my writing into myself until one year I went to Glastonbury Festival with a load of friends and I found the poetry tent and I saw performance poetry for the first time and I thought oh right that's what I'm that's what I'm doing that that's that's what I'm writing but I was too nervous to get up and actually do that so I still felt kind of um held back really and I Partly that was confidence, which I think comes into being, it can come into um, a gender thing that I think women are sometimes less confident than men to actually get up on a stage. Um, but also I think perhaps the voice, I wasn't seeing really any other black country voices until I met people like Brendan, uh, Jeff, who kind of, work with us and then there was um, a small press came out called Tyndall Street Press that was publishing regional writers like Paul MacDonald who did sound like me uh, and Anthony Cartwright who was writing like me and then suddenly I got something to aim for with what I was doing. Um, with regard to the performance I finally I think there were people at stages of my life that encouraged me which is why I see the importance in that happening me doing that and encouraging other people now um, so I actually met um, a black writer called Neville Vassell who coerced me into performing for the first time and I was in my late 30s then uh, and once I'd done it once I had the confidence but if it wasn't for him and being a very persuasive bloke and saying it was for charity and all this um, I don't know whether I'd be even doing it now and then after that I met organisations like Writing West Midlands who actively encouraged and you know bring people through. Um, what I see now when I work with uh, women writers is that there are fewer of them on the performance poetry scene than men that will get up and perform um, and I think again that's partly to do with confidence body image because often women have issues about how they look more so than men perhaps so they won't get up on a stage and find it really quite difficult and again the way that they speak oh my voice I don't like my voice that kind of that kind of response when you ask them to share work so also I think um, traditionally spoken word scene is a nighttime thing in pubs and a lot of women feel uncomfortable going into public houses on their own. I never did. Um, I've always done it because I, I used to play pool and that's a, a game that happens in pubs. So I, I always felt quite confident to do that, but a lot of women don't. 
and that is kind of one of the environments where spoken word was happening um, and also if you're from a culture that is not allowed to go into pubs same thing um, and I think the other thing for women is the the, the nighttime um, events because now sometimes when I put on events I'll do daytime stuff as well because a lot of women can't access nighttime events because they don't want to travel on their own or they might not you know they might have um children so childcare is an issue and I think that does affect I don't have children so it, it didn't hold me back I could go out and perform all over the place but if I had have done that would have stopped me that would have prevented me and I think those are some of the issues for women particularly in spoken word performance based things where you've got to show up and actually share your work so yeah I don't know if that answers mm -hmm. part of the question uh, so you um, you work not only with your voice and not only with the word, but only with the body, as I understand, in a performance. Uh, is it correct? Yes. So uh, what is uh, how do you understand the, the value of, of performance? You call, uh, as I know, you call this kind of performance a community performance. So uh, how do you understand this type of of art as a, as a tool of communication with the society, with the within the community? Um, within the black country, there are quite a few uh, events at a grassroots level where people can get up and share their work. So it doesn't have to be written down. They can do it from memory. They can share. And it's, it's, I think at that level, it's about being valued and having a voice and knowing that you're in an environment where other people speak like you and it can feel more um, supportive, I think, to have those kind of grassroots events where people get up in front, you know, behind a microphone and share whatever they want to. Um, these events happen all over the country. It's not just specific to the black country. Um, there are a lot of kind of regional events, regional events that happen everywhere where people from those communities share work that is about their communities quite often. Brendan runs um, a night in Wensbury, I run one in Warsaw and in Wolverhampton and there are other people doing the same uh, and you do get a lot of, not, not exclusively, but you do get a lot of dialect poetry at those things or poetry about, you know, your local community and I think that's really important that people see that writing isn't just something that other people do. It's about you expressing things about your place, your people, and that should be valued. And I think those events are a good jumping off point for people who want to write or develop their, their voice to share work. And I think, we, again, I've made my way through those kind of um, events to kind of develop my skills. Um, I think it can build confidence in other areas as well. So um, certainly, I, as I, I came to performing late, I find used to find um, talking to people in this kind of way very, very difficult. And the more of that I've done, I've got better at it. I'm still not brilliant, but it's um, it's about developing confidence for people, I think. And those events do do that, I believe. Mm -hmm. 
So probably it's time to ask Jonathan about these institutions that uh, help to support um, grassroots authors or local authors to emerge. Um, both Brandon and Emma mentioned some small editions, some small publishing houses that were the first to publish uh, their works. Uh, could you please uh, describe this landscape of uh, institutions and uh, actors uh, that uh, that help uh, local authors to, to to take to accept their voice? Yes, yes, of course. Well, I've had the same experience as Brendan and Emma when I was younger, wanting to get involved in a writing scene wherever I happened to live. And you ended up bumping into people who were doing small open mic events, and they were also publishing a little magazine. And certainly in the 1980s, when I started in the 1990s, it would be photocopied and stapled, and they'd do 50 copies. Um, uh, and... Um, <clears throat> It was a way of saying, we're not going to wait for the big publishers to find people. We're not going to assume the big publishers know best. We're going to publish our other writers who are not considered important enough yet. Um, so in the West Midlands, I've seen this constant, I suppose, tension between people who want to publish small magazines so that people they know can have their voice heard, people like Emma and Brendan, and then the big commercial publishing houses in London who are only interested in writers when they can make them money. To be brutally honest about it, um, that's what the commercial sector is about in publishing. That's what we call it. They call themselves the commercial sector. They are obviously just about extracting wealth from the creativity of whoever they come across. Now, my organization is in a way between those two organizations, those two sectors. We are trying to find ways for individuals to relate to the wider literature world in a way that doesn't just value them in terms of how much money they can make for people, but values them in terms of the importance of what they've got to say for other people, but also the importance of what they've got to say for themselves. One of the really nice things about the small open mic scene and the small poetry scene and the small magazine scene is maybe only 50 or 20 or 100 people will read or hear this work. But it's for those people, it's just as valuable as a book which has sold half a million. Because, of course, the wonderful thing about literature and, and when you're speaking a poem to somebody, it's one person speaking to another person. And so that relationship is just as important if it's just one person in the black country speaking to another person in the black country, just as important as the best-selling novels, which maybe speak to a hundred thousand or a million people. So we have tried to encourage small magazines and small publishers to set up and to keep going. So I have lots and lots of conversations. I run a network of, uh, independent publishers and that's about them getting together talking about how to make their work go further uh, how to make sure that they can compete in a way against the bigger commercial houses um, we also have spent a lot of time as emma said with different individual writers just talking to them and saying okay this world looks really complicated and really off-putting 
but actually what you've got to say is really good and your voice is really interesting, you should keep going. You should keep going to try and get the big publishing houses interested in you, Penguin Books, people like that. But also you should keep going and try and create um, groups of people who want to hear your work where you are. There's a, there's a lovely phrase which I often use, and I don't know whether it was written by Coleridge or Wordsworth, the, one of the two poets from the end of the uh, 18th century. Um, one of them said, you need to create the taste by which your work will be enjoyed. Now, that's a really perceptive thing they said. What they said was, first of all, people won't want your work because they don't know about it and no one sold it to them. You need to spend 10, 20, 30, 40 years getting people to understand why it's enjoyable, giving them a chance to develop an ear for it. So when they hear a black country dialect poem, they can enjoy it. They don't feel frightened. Or when they hear a poem in perfect English, they can enjoy it and they don't feel frightened. So that, that idea that we, we can't just give people what they're asking for, we need to give them time to develop their own tastes and interests, and then they'll have a broad range of things they're interested in. That idea has been moving around, certainly British society, since um, 1798 and probably before then. And it is an idea which is kind of slightly at odds with the marketplace, because the marketplace is just about satisfying immediate desires, whereas literature, of course, is about satisfying eternal desires, the desire to understand, to feel better about yourself. So I'm making my organisation sound like we're as important as Wordsworth. We probably aren't. But in our small way, we've been trying to give people the chance to be given some time to have their work appreciated so that it doesn't just get dismissed. Uh, you know, what Emma was saying there about, you know, you don't hear people who talk like you or write like you and you think nobody wants to hear you. Well, of course, the opposite should be true. If you've got an interesting story to tell that no one else is telling, you're even more important. And the, the sad thing about literature in Britain is so easily it gets settled into just talking to itself. The same people who edit books and who work in publishing houses, they think those are the same people as the readers. Of course, the readers are very different. So there's been a movement in the last 10 years even to get mainstream publishers, the commercial publishers, to come out of London where they're all based and to actually come to the black country or come to the north of England or wherever they're going to go and, and get to know readers and to realise that somebody may have a black country accent or a Liverpool accent doesn't mean they're not very smart, doesn't mean they don't want the very best writing and doesn't mean that they might not be producing the very best writing because they quite possibly are. And we've had this in British culture for, you know, for 200 years, waves of people pushing to get their voices heard, and then the centre pushes back, and then the outskirts push back in again. It's a constant battle to make sure that, that literature isn't just portrayed as one thing, but we accept literature is many, many different things in different places. So that's what my organisation on a small scale tries to do, is to support other people to set up their small presses, to run their little their festivals, whether they're big or whether they're small. Uh, and in fact, Emma hasn't mentioned it particularly, but the Wolverhampton Literature Festival, fantastic festival because it is grassroots based. You know, most of the people at that festival are from the locality and the audience who come to it, come to it because it's happening in Wolverhampton near where they live. And they don't wanna have to travel a hundred miles to a nice town called Hay on Wye. They wanna be able to go to Sears and Writers in Wolverhampton. So that's what we're about. And 
to come back to the, the spirit of these podcasts, Cultura Cura, and that's a lovely phrase. And actually, of course, everything we're all doing, I think all three of us, is about through writing and through promoting writing, is helping people understand what it's like from someone else's point of view, to see the world from someone else's eyes, which of course is what literature does so wonderfully. You don't have to go to these places to understand what it's like to be there because you've read the book or you've heard the poem. And that's what we're all about, certainly in our work in, in the West Midlands and hopefully in the black country, is about getting people to understand what it's like if you've worked in a black country factory for 18 years like Brendan did. And you know the point Brendan made there about having to code switch how you spoke, really interesting because I hear that in Birmingham where I live from the Jamaican community. They talk about code switching, but when they're with their friends, they can talk in Jamaican patois, but when they're in their offices or in their businesses or in their factories, maybe they have to talk differently. And so it's really interesting. We have this, we're, we're, we're forced to have different types of language depending on the circumstances of where we are, but we should basically treat these languages as all of equal value, even if we don't always understand them. I can't understand Jamaican Patois, but I don't doubt it's a great language and possibly they can't understand what I say, some of them. So, that's probably what I'd like to say really about what we're all doing is we're just trying to get people to hear and understand different types of lives in the black country or, or further afield. Uh, Jonathan, I fully solidarize with your uh, point about uh, giving other people a chance to understand uh, others, others' position. Uh, 